What Wives Wish Their Husbands Knew About Women by Dr. James Dobson Tyndale House Publishers, Wheaton, Illinois Chapter 3 Low Self-Esteem Believe it or not, low self-esteem was indicated as the most troubling problem by the majority of the women completing the questionnaire. More than 50% of the group marked this item above every other alternative on the list, and 80% placed it in the top five. This finding is perfectly consistent with my own observations and expectations. Even in seemingly healthy and happily married young women, Personal inferiority and self-doubt cut the deepest and leave the most wicked scars. This same old nemesis is usually revealed within the first five minutes of a counseling session. Feelings of inadequacy, lack of confidence, and a certainty of worthlessness have become a way of life, a way of despair for millions of American women. What does it mean to have low self-esteem? What does one experience when struggling with deep-seated feelings of inadequacy? Perhaps I can express the troubling thoughts and anxieties which reverberate through the back roads of an insecure mind. It is sitting alone in a house during the quiet afternoon hours, wondering why the phone doesn't ring, wondering why you have no, quote, real friends. It is longing for someone to talk to, soul to soul but knowing there is no such person worthy of your trust. It is feeling that they wouldn't like me if they really knew me. It is becoming terrified when speaking to a group of your peers and feeling like a fool when you get home. It is wondering why other people have so much more talent and ability than you do. It is feeling incredibly ugly and sexually unattractive. It is admitting that you have become a failure as a wife and mother. It is disliking everything about yourself and wishing, constantly wishing, you could be someone else. It is feeling unloved and unlovable and lonely and sad. It is lying in bed after the family is asleep, pondering the vast emptiness inside and longing for unconditional love. It is intense self-pity. It is reaching up in the darkness to remove a tear from the corner of your eye. It is depression. There will be a few readers at this point who will have no true understanding of the experiences I am describing. They are, perhaps, the women who were superstars as children. They were cute babies, bright in the early school years, cheerleaders and homecoming queens, and everybody's favorites in high school. For these relatively rare individuals who have never experienced the pangs of inferiority, this primary source of feminine depression will remain a bit mysterious. For the greater majority, however, personal identification with this emotional dungeon will be instantaneous. Have you been there? Have you drawn the same weary conclusion that you are a flop and a failure in life? If so, much of the text which follows will be addressed to your needs. 
Every item on the sources of depression list relates to it, one way or another. I have said that low self-esteem is extremely common among women today. That fact was illustrated again just moments ago. This book is being written in a quiet public library near my home, out of hearing of my telephone. And the supervising librarian approached me during a break in my work. She told me that a patron was trying to locate one of my previous books, Hide or Seek, and wondered if I would speak to her. A graceful woman, approximately 45 years of age, was waiting for me at the counter. After introducing herself, she said, I've been trying to find your book, because I heard it deals with self-esteem. I'm constantly depressed over my own inadequacy, and hoped I could find help in your writings. We talked for a half hour as she expressed the same intense longings and frustrations which I had been describing when the interruption came. If our conversation had been recorded, it would have beautifully illustrated the symptoms I hear so frequently expressed by women of all ages. Their frustration has become a very familiar theme song. Now, I certainly would not want to give the impression that low self-esteem is exclusively a feminine characteristic. Many men feel as insecure and worthless as do similarly troubled members of the gentle sex. In fact, low self-esteem is a threat to the entire human family, affecting children, adolescents, the elderly, all socioeconomic levels of society, and each race and ethnic culture. It can engulf anyone who feels disrespected in the eyes of other people. At least 90% of our self-concept is built from what we think others think about us. I can hardly respect myself, obviously, if the rest of the world seems to believe that I am dumb or ugly or lazy or boring or uncreative or undesirable. A very old proverb reads, No one can stand the awful knowledge that he is not needed. What wisdom is recorded in that phrase? It is not uncommon for a man to develop major illnesses within a few months following his retirement. Just knowing that his job is finished often accelerates the process of deterioration. A well-known physician author stated recently that a man who believes he has no further worth or purpose in living will be dead in 18 months. Likewise, the most rebellious, hostile teenagers are usually those who are bitterly disappointed with who they are and what they are becoming. If low self-esteem is so pervasive throughout our society, then why have I emphasized its impact specifically on women? Because the disease of inferiority has reached epidemic proportions among females, particularly at this time in our history. Their traditional responsibilities have become matters of disrespect and ridicule. Raising children and maintaining a home hold very little social status in most areas of the country, and women who are cast into that role often look at themselves with unconcealed disenchantment. To understand this process, let's look at a contrived example. Suppose it suddenly became very unpopular to be a dentist. Suppose every magazine carried an article or two about the stupidity of those tooth-and-gum boys making them look foolish. Suppose television commercials and dramas and comedy programs all poked fun at the same battered target. 
suppose the humor associated with dentistry then died, leaving contempt and general disrespect in its place. Suppose the men in white were ignored at social gatherings and their wives were excluded from in-group activities. Suppose dentists had difficulty hiring assistants and associates because no one wanted his friends to know he was working for a tooth fairy. What would happen if all social status were suddenly drained from the profession of dentistry? I suspect that it would soon become very difficult to get a cavity drilled and filled. The illustration is extreme, admittedly, but the analogy to women can hardly be missed. Homemakers have been teased and ridiculed and disrespected. They have been the butt of jokes and sordid humor until the subject is no longer funny. As I have spoken to families across the country, great frustration has been expressed by those women who have been made to feel dumb and foolish for wanting to stay at home. Those who are dedicated to their responsibilities are currently being mocked in women's magazines as supermoms. They have heard the prevailing opinion. There must be something wrong with those strange creatures who seem to like domestic duties and responsibilities. I appeared on a radio talk show in Los Angeles last week, and the militant female moderator argued that it was virtually impossible for a woman to be happy at home. The forces which have promulgated this viewpoint are everywhere at once. On TV, in magazines, on radio, in newspapers, in written advertisements, in books and novels. Each one hacking steadily at the confidence and satisfaction of women at home. It is not surprising then that American housewives are faced with the awful knowledge that they are not needed. They would have to be deaf and blind to have missed that message. But the decline in self-respect among women has other causes as well. Another highly significant factor has to do with the role of beauty in our society. I documented this problem extensively in my book, Hide or Seek, and will not take time to restate the entire issue here. It is enough to say that physical attractiveness, or the lack of it, has a profound impact on feminine self-esteem. It is very difficult to separate basic human worth from the quality of one's own body. Therefore, a woman who feels ugly is almost certain to feel inferior to her peers. This pressure is greatly magnified in a highly eroticized society such as ours. Isn't it reasonable that the more steamed up a culture becomes over sex, and ours is at the boiling point, the more likely it is to reward beauty and punish ugliness? When sex becomes super significant as it is today, then those with the least sex appeal necessarily begin to worry about their inability to compete in that marketplace. They are bankrupt in the most valuable, quote, currency of the day. Millions have fallen into that trap. Advertisements have contributed immeasurably to the notion that the slightest physical flaw is cause for alarm and despair. Have you seen the magazine ad for a magic cream that promises to remove horrid age spots? It shows a picture of four menopausal women playing cards, and one is cringing in shame because she has an age spot on her naked hand. The word horrid is always used to describe her condition. Now seriously folks, in view of the world's grave problems, 
a freckle on the paw couldn't rank very high. Yet every middle-aged woman who sees that advertisement will look down at her hands with a gasp of anxiety. How can she bear the disgrace? It is horrid, no less. By cultivating this kind of nonsense, Madison Avenue has taught us to feel inferior and inadequate over the slightest physical imperfections. A third source of low self-esteem among American women relates to basic intelligence. Simply stated, they feel dumb and stupid. Psychologists have known for decades that there is no fundamental difference in the overall level of intelligence between men and women, although there are areas of greater strength for each sex. Men tend to score higher on tests of mathematics and abstract reasoning, while women excel in language and all verbal skills. However, when the individual abilities are combined, neither sex has a clear advantage over the other. Despite this fact, women are much more inclined to doubt their own mental capacity than are men. Why? I don't know. But it is a very important factor in low self-esteem. Incidentally, men tend to value intelligence above physical attractiveness in themselves, although both qualities are highly desired. For women, however, the opposite is true. Beauty outranks intelligence throughout life. The reason the average woman would rather have beauty than brains is because she knows the average man can see better than he can think. No offense intended, gentlemen. In reality, low self-esteem among women may be traced to thousands of causes, most of them linked with early home life in one way or another. The adult who felt unloved or disrespected as a child will never fully forget the experience. As the tongue always returns to the sight of a missing tooth, the human mind constantly searches and gropes for evidence of its own worthiness. Thus, childhood inferiority imposes itself on mental apparatus for decades to come. So what are today's women doing about the problem of low self-esteem? No one can ignore it completely any more than a severe headache can be suppressed. The pain of inferiority is incredibly intense, absolutely demanding the attention of its sufferer. As such, more day-by-day -day behavior is motivated by ego needs than any other factor in human experience, including the power of sex. Women who feel inferior must seek ways to deal with it, and the two most common coping responses today are at opposite ends of the behavioral spectrum. The feminine reader might look for her own footprints within the description of these two divergent personality patterns. 1. Withdrawal During the fall of 1966, I accepted a position on the staff of Children's Hospital of Los Angeles and was required to attend a general orientation session on the morning of my arrival. Everyone who has worked for a large organization is acquainted with the nature of these orientation meetings. New employees are told how to operate the telephones and about insurance and retirement programs, sick leave benefits, etc. As you will recall, these sessions are always dull and boring. I think they're planned that way by the personnel departments which developed them. I can visualize an advertisement placed in the classified section of a newspaper as follows. Wanted, orientation session leader, must have monotone voice, disinterest in life, and ability to speak while yawning. 
Those with sense of humor need not apply. Please contact Miss Maud Wannabe in the personnel department shortly after her morning nap. As one might guess, I did not go into the session with any overwhelming enthusiasm or anticipation. I was directed to be in room 203 at 9 a.m., and I arrived five minutes early. There were 12 of us to be indoctrinated that morning, and it just happened that the other 11 were women. I don't know why. Furthermore, most of the other participants looked very young, perhaps 18 or 19 years of age, and they were probably beginning their first secretarial or clerical jobs. Frankly, the social atmosphere was icy that day. The first hours on a new job are scary at best, and the girls were obviously tense. Have you ever been in a small room containing 12 people where no one is talking to anyone else? It's a weird scene, reminding me of how people act in a crowded elevator. Everyone on board silently watches the numbers above the door, as though something highly informative were happening there. That was the kind of social atmosphere that prevailed at the start of our meeting. If one girl whispered a message to another standing nearby, everyone would turn to look and listen. Consequently, no one spoke unless required to do so. There was only one hope that the twelve of us would survive the activities of the morning, and that was in the expectation that coffee would be served. I glanced around the room and spied a large coffee pot on a table in one corner. Now I don't know what caused the delay, but our indomitable leader apparently failed to get the brew started on time. She didn't even mention the coffee, but we could all hear the pot chugging and gurgling. The aroma drifted throughout the room, and I knew the eleven women were thinking about it. They would turn and look at the pot when it spoke. Furthermore, there were dozens of doughnuts carefully arranged on the coffee table, and that definitely increased our interest in the northwest part of the room. Our leader apparently didn't notice the heartfelt desire of the group. She stepped to the podium and began working her way down the 42-item agenda. After an interminable period of time, perhaps an hour or more, she said unenthusiastically, Okay, people, I think we'll take a short break now, and we'll have some refreshments. But she was organized, folks. She had obviously thought this thing out in advance. She didn't just turn that mob loose to go over to the coffee pot en masse. She felt it would be a good idea for us to go one at a time. I was sitting on one end of a horseshoe table, see diagram, and she turned to the young woman in position A on the opposite side. Would you like to go get a cup of coffee? She asked the first girl. Well, this young lady was about 18 or 19 and was undeniably nervous about her new job. She quickly glanced around the room and then dropped her eyes and said softly, No, thank you. I don't believe I'll have any coffee. I knew very well what she was thinking. There are many ways you can get hurt while doing anything in front of eleven other people. She could stumble awkwardly on the way to the table. The spigot could stick on the coffee pot. She could burn herself coming back. There were just too many risks involved in the solo performance, and she withdrew from the challenge. I'm sure she intended to let everyone else go first, and then she would change her mind and get a cup of coffee with no risk. I watched her with amusement. The undaunted leader carried out her prearranged game plan and turned to the second girl, in position B. Well, how about you? Would you like to get some coffee? she asked. 
This second girl sized up the risk and realized that she faced all the same threats as the first employee, plus one additional sanction. The group had spoken through that first girl and said, We're not drinking coffee today. The pressure was too great, and she replied shyly, No, thank you. The girl in position C was in a tougher spot yet. We then had a unanimous vote of two to nothing against the acceptance of coffee and donuts. How could she defy that solidarity of opinion? She couldn't and didn't. No, thank you, she said discreetly. The pressure then became enormous. Girls sitting in positions D, E, F, G, and H all declined the offer of refreshments. I couldn't believe it. There was the coffee pot, waving and beckoning to all. There were the multicolored donuts, smiling and offering their services. This was to be the only oasis between two arid deserts, yet the caravan refused to drink. The offer of coffee came all the way around to where I sat, and not one person had accepted. When it became my turn, I said, I believe I'll have a cup. I got up and walked toward the table, and eleven women followed me over there. I looked over my shoulder, and here came the entire group. To be a gentleman, I stepped back and let the ladies go first, and it took me fifteen minutes to get to the coffee pot. Is it not amazing how terrified we are of each other? We cower in fear that we will bring ridicule down upon us, even when the act in question is of no moral or social significance. As in this example, we usually take the safest and quietest route, even when the issue is as silly as to donut or not to donut. The genuine withdrawer will cower backward in fear and trembling. He will never say a word in a group unless the subject is innocuous and the thought has been carefully screened. He will run no social risks that aren't absolutely necessary. He will spend much of his time alone and will avoid any activity that might prove threatening. He will peek out at the world going by, but will rarely let his hidden self be observed, either publicly or in private. He will be excessively meek. Jackie Vernon said, the meek will inherit the earth because they'll be too timid to refuse it, and I think he's right. And of course, the painful part of withdrawing is the self-pity which almost always accompanies it. Intense personal sorrow is a constant companion of this lifestyle bringing with it those destructive little comments spoken in the inner chambers of the mind. I knew you'd blow it. You never do anything right. Wouldn't you know it would happen to me? Why? 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 Even the friends of a self-pityer are selected for their willingness to commiserate in the tragedies of daily living. Self-pity is both addictive and highly contagious. It spreads like wildfire within a family, a neighborhood, or church congregation. It is also exhausting, leaving its victims unmotivated, tired, bored, and miserable. And more and more commonly, this form of despair among women leads to the ultimate impersonal hatred, suicide itself. In all, withdrawing is not a very successful approach to inferiority. It is the most stressful and the least effective of all the ego defenses. In reality, it is no defense. For centuries, however, withdrawal has been the most common personality pattern among women. Number two, fighting. 
I was recently invited to appear on a live television program in Los Angeles to discuss the subject of self-esteem in women. No mention was made of any other professional being asked to appear with me, so I assumed it was to be a solo shot. When I arrived at the studio, however, I was taken to the green room and introduced to a woman who was identified as the other guest. After mumbling hello, she slumped in a chair and neither looked at me nor spoke again unless I asked her a direct question. It was clear from the scowl on her face that this was not Polly personality to be sharing the camera with me. Then I noticed a large bronze medallion hanging around her neck with a clenched fist thrust upward into the traditional symbol for female. It began to dawn on me that my opinions might tend to differ a bit from those with this other guest. What kind of work do you do? I asked with genuine interest. I run consciousness raising groups for women, she replied. The creaking of her jaw into the closed position told me she intended to offer no further details. That's about as far as our conversation got before we were ushered to the set. During the 30-minute broadcast which followed, her venom and hatred for men poured forth. She reiterated all of the familiar concepts of the most militant feminists and attacked everything remotely traditional about the home, about child-rearing and marriage. I presented the opposing viewpoint with equal candor and stated that anger and hostility were not the best solutions for feelings of inferiority and inadequacy. No, she said with great emotion. We need the anger. It was clearly the objective of my toothy friend to spread hostility among women far and wide. She exuded anger out her fingertips and reminded me of an ill-tempered bulldog. Her motive for propagating the hatred of men was partially financial, since her consciousness-raising groups obviously spent much of their time in man-hating activities. But what source of energy powers the anger of the women's movement at large? Why has hostility become so characteristic of many liberation groups today? The answer is found primarily in feelings of inferiority. Anger is another increasingly prevalent way of handling all forms of frustration. While withdrawal has gone out of style among those who feel inferior, anger is in its heyday. Everyone who has an axe to grind is supposed to lash out at his oppressors with a clenched fist. Whether it be the black civil rights advocate, or the brown berets, or the Jewish defense league, or the gay liberation movement, or the parents against busing, or the veterans against the war, or the 8th grade class at Woodrow Wilson Junior High. Everyone is mad at someone. And when it's all put together, we have a society in the throes of violence. The anger of the women's liberation movement is part of this pattern. Withdrawing and fighting are only two of the familiar responses to inferiority, but these are the most common. It is an unfortunate pattern too, because they are both extreme approaches to the problem. One lies at one end of the pendulum, and the other far out to the other side. Both are overreactions. Neither is very healthy. There is a better response to low self-esteem, as we will see in the following sections.
Joyce Landorf, the gifted author of His Stubborn Love, recently asked people to answer the following question. What would you change about women in general if you could wave some sort of magic wand? My answer, which is now published with the other replies in her book, The Fragrance of Beauty, is quoted below. If I could write a prescription for the women of the world, I would provide each one of them with a healthy dose of self-esteem and personal worth, taken three times a day until symptoms disappear. I have no doubt that this is their greatest need. If women felt genuinely respected in their role as wives and mothers, they would not need to abandon it for something better. If they felt equal with men in personal worth, they would not need to be equivalent to men in responsibility. If they could only bask in the dignity and status granted them by the Creator, then their femininity would be valued as their greatest asset, rather than scorned as an old garment to be discarded. Without question, the future of a nation depends on how it sees its women, and I hope we will teach our little girls to be glad they were chosen by God for the special purposes of womanhood. This understanding of the feminine world was certainly verified by my questionnaire on the sources of depression in women. The wives and mothers who participated in this inquiry did not appear to be suffering from low self-esteem. They were outwardly social and pleasant, laughing and interacting with one another. Yet, when given an opportunity to reflect their true feelings in confidence, self-doubt rose to the surface. One of those young women later came to me for counseling and wept for more than an hour as she tried to express the inexpressible anguish of inferiority. Near the end of our session, I asked her if she had ever shared these feelings with her husband. Her reply was typical. I've been married for eight years, but my husband has no idea that I feel so inadequate. Inferiority is the best kept secret of the year yet it is one which wives most wish their husbands comprehended. Perhaps the pages which follow will help convey that message. Questions and Answers Question. How do feelings of inferiority get started? It seems as though I've always felt inadequate, but I can't remember where it all began. Answer. You don't remember it because your self-doubt originated during your earliest days of conscious existence. A little child is born with an irrepressible inclination to question his own worth. It is as natural as his urge to walk and talk. At first, it is a primitive assessment of his place in the home, and then it extends outward to his early social contacts beyond the front door. These initial impressions of who he is have a profound effect on his developing personality, particularly if the experiences are painful. It is not uncommon for a pre-kindergartner to have concluded already that he is terribly ugly, incredibly dumb, unloved, unneeded, foolish, or strange. These early feelings of inadequacy may remain relatively tranquil and subdued during the elementary school years, they lurk just below the conscious mind and are never far from awareness. But the child with the greatest self-doubts constantly accumulates evidence of his inferiority during these middle years. 
Each failure is recorded in vivid detail. Every unkind remark is inscribed in his memory. Rejection and ridicule scratch and nick his delicate ego all through the quiet years. Then it happens. He enters adolescence and his world explodes from within. All of the accumulated evidence is resurrected and propelled into his conscious mind with volcanic forcefulness. He will deal with that devastating experience for the rest of his life. Have you done the same? Question. I have a friend who was married for nine years before her husband left her for another woman. I think she was a loving and devoted wife, yet she seemed to feel that the breakup of her marriage was her own fault. As a result, her self-esteem disintegrated and has never recovered. Is this a typical reaction? Answer. It has always been surprising for me to observe how often the wounded marriage partner, the person who was clearly the victim of the other's irresponsibility, is the one who suffers the greatest pangs of guilt and inferiority. How strange that the one who tried to hold things together in the face of obvious rejection often finds herself wondering, how did I fail him? I just wasn't woman enough to hold my man. I am nothing, or he wouldn't have left. I drove him to it. I wasn't pretty enough. I didn't deserve him in the first place. The blame for marital disintegration is seldom the fault of the husband or wife alone. It takes two to tango, as they say, and there is always some measure of shared blame for a divorce. However, when one marriage partner makes up his mind to behave irresponsibly, to become involved extramaritally, or to run from his family commitments and obligations, he usually seeks to justify his behavior by magnifying the failures of his spouse. You didn't meet my needs, so I had to satisfy them somewhere else, is a familiar accusation. By increasing the guilt of his partner in this way, he reduces his own culpability. For a husband or wife with low self-esteem, these charges and recriminations are accepted as fact when hurled his way. Yes, it was my fault. I drove you to it. Thus, the victim assumes the full responsibility for his partner's irresponsibility and self-worth shatters. I would not recommend that your friend sit around hating the memory of her husband. Bitterness and resentment are emotional cancers that rot us from within. However, if I were counseling her, I would encourage her to examine the facts carefully. Answers to these questions should be sought. Despite my human frailties, did I value my marriage and try to preserve it? Did my husband decide to destroy it and then seek justification for his actions? Was I given a fair chance to resolve the areas of greatest irritation? Could I have held him even if I had made all the changes he wanted? Is it reasonable that I should hate myself for this thing that has happened? Your friend should know that social rejection breeds inferiority and self-pity in enormous proportions. And rejection by the one you love is the most powerful destroyer of self-esteem in the entire realm of human experience. She might be helped to see herself as a victim of this process, rather than a worthless failure at the game of love. Question. You mentioned the relationship between self-esteem and one's physical body. I have never felt beautiful or even attractive to the opposite sex. Does this explain why I am extremely modest, even being ashamed to be seen in a bathing suit? 
Answer. Modesty has three basic origins. First, it is built into our fallen human nature. After sinning in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve's eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. To a varying degree within the descendants of Adam, we have inherited this same sensitivity about our bodies. The current trend toward public nudity goes cross-grain to this nature, and requires some getting used to by those who first try it. I overheard a vacuous girl sitting near me in a cafeteria recently, as she described her sexual experience to her companions. She spoke in a loud, unguarded tones about her attempted changeover from a heterosexual to homosexual status. I still feel a bit strange walking around nude in front of my friends, she said, but I'm trying to get used to it. Her conscience and her God-given modesty were obviously being violated by the mod attributes she was trying to adopt. I fear she will pay a heavy price for the avant-garde ideas she has been sold. Second, modesty is a product of early home life. Those who are taught to conceal themselves compulsively in front of other family members usually carry that excessive modesty even into their marital relationships. It can turn legitimate sexual experiences into a self-conscious obligation. The third source of extreme modesty is the one you mentioned, and it is probably the most powerful. Those who are ashamed of their bodies are highly motivated to conceal them. One of the greatest fears among junior high students is that they will have to disrobe and shower in front of their peers. Boys and girls alike are terrified by the possibility of ridicule for their lack of development or precociousness. This embarrassment is often retained in the adult years with feelings of inferiority stamped all over it. For example, a very common reaction among women who feel unattractive is the insistence on having sexual relations in the dark. They are often extremely inflexible on this matter, even though their husbands are visually oriented and prefer to look while they love. This simple difference in viewpoints has undoubtedly been argued in a million bedrooms. Incidentally, medical examinations are extremely distasteful for those who bear this kind of modesty. Even for those who are less sensitive about their bodies, a routine physical can be murder. Who hasn't felt a bit strange carrying a urine specimen through a crowded waiting room, or felt like Lady Godiva sitting side-saddle on an examining table? Question. I know a woman who needs people so badly, but she unintentionally drives them away. She talks too much and constantly complains and makes everyone want to run away from her. I know she has a terrible inferiority complex, but I could help her if she would let me. How can I tell her about these irritating faults without making her feel even worse about herself? Answer. You do it the way porcupines make love. Very, very carefully. Let me offer a general principle that has thousands of applications in dealing with people, including the situation you have posed. The right to criticize must be earned, even if the advice is constructive in nature. Before you are entitled to tinker with another person's self-esteem, you are obligated first to demonstrate your own respect for him or her as a person. This is accomplished through an atmosphere of love and kindness and human warmth. 
Then, when a relationship of confidence has been carefully constructed, you will have earned the right to discuss a potentially threatening topic. Your motives have thereby been clarified. This principle is in direct opposition to the current mania for honesty. One woman walks into the home of another and says, It really smells in here. You should air it out once in a while. Or a husband tells his wife, I don't want to be mean, dear, but you're really getting wrinkly around the eyes. Honesty? Sure, but what a price to pay for it. Honesty, which does not have the best interests of the hearer at heart, is a cruel form of selfishness. In response to your specific question, I would suggest that you invest some effort in building a healthy relationship with your verbose friend, and then feed her your suggestions in very small doses. And remember all the while that someone, somewhere, would like to straighten out a few of your flaws too. We all have them. Question. What is the most common drug prescribed in America today? Answer. It is Valium, which is a muscle relaxant having the effect of a tranquilizer. The need for these prescriptions tells us something about the universal tensions and pressures in our society and the inability of our citizens to cope with them.